chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And uh, for the next three weeks, uh, to give you sort of a preview, Lord willing, uh, if he gives us health and life and strength, we want to deal with today the subject as of Jesus as our rescuer. Jesus as our Savior, our, our Savior, our rescuer. And then next week, we want to deal with the sub- subject of Jesus as our King. Jesus as our King. And then on the last Sunday of September, we want to deal with the subject of Jesus, our friend, and how he is a friend to sinners. He's a friend to all who call upon him. And uh, we are grateful to be able to look at uh, how significant Jesus is and what he wants to do within our hearts and within our lives uh, in these upcoming days. And so what a great opportunity for you to invite folks next week to hear about how Jesus is our king. And then the week after that, Jesus as our friend. That's D6 Sunday, that last Sunday of September. And so we'll have our kids down here and our families will be able to worship together as we consider Jesus as our friend. But today, I want us to think about Jesus, our rescuer. As we read together Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, I want to set that up by drawing your attention to Psalm 3510. You don't have to turn there. It will be on the screen. Psalm 3510. The psalmist said, My whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, Lord? Who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Jesus, our rescuer. Read with me verses 1 through 8 of Matthew chapter 9. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Matthew writes, and he says, In getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. This is the city of Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. There's a reoccurring theme here that you see throughout chapter 9. It's a response of faith to those who are discouraged, to those who are depressed, to those who have great needs in their life. And Jesus says, take heart, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I love verse 7. And he rose, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open because... While I read verses 1 through 8 together with you, we're going to work our way down through uh, Matthew chapter 9 as we consider Jesus our rescuer. Everyone loves a heroic story with a hero that saves the day. You and I here today are no different. These heroic stories, books and movies fill the cultural landscape in all shapes and forms. 
The hero is often seen in a romance movie where one person comes to the aid of the other who is struggling and they have some need in their life and then somehow they fall in love and then it seems like almost every time someone dies and then the movie ends, right? And you're thinking, wait a minute. And they're trying to help you know the person who had the real need was not the one who had the need, but they were really actually the rescuer of the one who's left and remains behind. The most prevalent illustration with our culture's preoccupation of the heroic is seen in superhero movies. The culmination of the Avengers Affinity War Endgame uh, is the number one grossing movie of all time. It, it surpassed Avatar. I think they had to uh, maybe re-release it with a different ending or something for that to happen, but I mean, it has sold more movie tickets than any movie in the history of Hollywood. And what's amazing is that that happened after one superhero movie after another. It seems like since the late 1970s that we have experienced and encountered one superhero movie after another. Our cravings for a superhero to rescue us is summed up best as Bonnie Tyler uttered these words. Where have all the good men gone, and where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn, and I dream of what I need. Up where the mountains meet the heavens, out where the lightning splits the sea, I could swear there is someone somewhere watching me. Through the wind and the chill and the rain and the storm and the flood, I can feel his approach like a fire in my blood. Listen to Bonnie Tyler. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong, he's got to be fast, and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon, and he's got to be larger than life. I need a hero. The University of Kentucky Wildcat football team needed a hero last night. We had one until we got a little greedy with a fourth and two. Until we, instead of running the ball to run the clock off, we wanted to throw a pass. And it was just the biggest mismanagement of a football game that's all about possession and field uh, presence than anything. I'm sure last night that our coach probably went to bed thinking, boy, I blew that. I sure do need a hero. I want to say something to everyone in this room today. We need a hero and we have a hero and his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, we crave for something that is always incomplete. We love the story of the under, underdog team that uh, they weren't supposed to win it, but somehow they made it to the championship game, and they're playing a, a far superior, talented team who has just this unbelievable record, and then somehow they make this great push, and, and it's Goliath against the underdogs, and, and man, it's a nip-and-tuck game, and right there at the end, they've got a shot to win it, and, and the star of the underdog team comes down, and he pulls up, and he shoots that 15-footer, banks off the glass, it hits the rim, it rolls in, and it rolls out, and everyone leaves disheartened because our best heroes in this life always fall short. That is true in church life as well. I am not a hero. Pastor Brian, uh, Pastor Taylor, Pastor Justin... 
our church council, our deacons, our Sunday school teachers, all of our leaders at church, all of our ministry leaders, none of us are heroes. If you believe it, really affirm that by saying amen. There's one hero to the Calvary family story, and his name is Jesus, right? And when we seek to replace Jesus with our own effort of being something more in hopes to rescue, right? What we're doing is on the verge of blasphemy because there's one hero to all of our story, and his name is is Jesus. And so the world craves for a hero, a rescuer, a deliverer, a savior who is true, a present reality and not a figment of our imagination. And my brothers and sisters, Jesus is that hero rescuer for us. And so would you just walk with me down through this passage of scripture in chapter 9 and consider how, first of all, Jesus rescues us from our sin. See, Jesus always addresses our greatest need first. We know that we see this same story that we read here in verses 1 through 8 of Matthew 9. We see it in Mark chapter 2. And Mark gives us even a little bit more background information about it. We know there are the four friends, but we know they're in Capernaum. We know that they're at Peter, mother-in-law's house. We know that the, the house is packed and they couldn't get in because everybody's wanting to hear this new rabbi who's in town. And so we know they, they let this man who is a paralytic and he had been crippled for a long time, they let him down through the roof so that they could get their friend to Jesus. And the very first thing Jesus does is say to this man, your sins are forgiven you, right? And it causes no small uproar. The religious crowd that is there, they begin to murmur or grumble in their heart. Now that is significant. That is significant. Because they're not murmuring out loud. They're murmuring in their heart, but Jesus perceives their spirit. He knows what's going on inside of them. And so what goes on is Jesus just forgives this man for his sins and everybody begins to question, what is Jesus doing uh, saying to this man that your sins are forgiven him? Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I would say to you, that Jesus always deals with our most pressing needs first. He always deals with the true nature and cause of the issue at hand. See, this man's greatest need was not that he was crippled and he couldn't walk and he couldn't get to Jesus and he was so depressed and discouraged because he had been that way for some time. That was not the man's greatest need. The man's greatest need was to have his sin forgiven because it was due to sin and the fall that had caused the flesh to fail this man in the first place. And Jesus says to this man, take heart. You've been discouraged. You've been depressed. This is no life for you to live. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, for Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves and who we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Pastor Randy, why do you feel like that we have to have forgiveness of sins? 
Because the Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is God's glory, right, that he calls us to, to recognize, to live for him, to bow before. And it says that we have sinned and we've all missed that mark of God's glory. And so we all need to have our sins covered or atoned for. They need to be forgiven and our lives need to be redeemed. They need to be revalued in the way that God originally wanted them to be valued. And so Jesus comes and he lives a sinless life and he dies a sacrificial death on the cross that our sins may be forgiven. So he says to this man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. My brothers and sisters, I want to say to you today that Jesus Christ has forgiven us of our sins that we may no longer walk therein. That if he has delivered you from pride, God calls you not to walk in pride any longer. That if he's forgiving you for adultery, that you would not walk in adultery any longer. That he's forgiving you from lying and that you no longer have to walk uh, lying or being uh, not bearing false witness. You have this wonderful ability to have been transferred, if you've been born again, from the domain of darkness into what Paul says, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son in whom he loves. Oh, my brothers and sisters, turn from your sin. You say, preacher, is he speaking here to a lost man or a saved man? Well, he's speaking to a man who had yet uh, come to exercise faith in God, but this man soon exercises faith in God. But I would say to you this idea of confession and repentance and asking the Lord to forgive us of our sin not only occurs before we are born again and before we know Christ, but after we know Christ as well. Because John tells it this way and says it this way. For if we confess our sins that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now here's the thing about that. It is vitally important that we take sin as seriously as the Lord Jesus takes sin. Because what will happen is sin will keep you from the word of God and uh, it will just dam up your spiritual life and you'll not be able to hear from the Lord if you're not confessing your sin on a daily basis. And so we go to the Lord and as he convicts us and he lets us know that we're a sinner in need of a savior and we call upon Jesus and ask him to forgive us of our sin and Jesus gloriously does that and he brings us into the kingdom of his son. He delivers us from the domain of darkness to the light and then he calls us to walk in that redemption or that forgiveness. Don't raise your hands, but I just wonder here today, are there anyone who've yet to receive Christ as your Savior? You don't believe that he died on the cross, or until this point, you've, you've not believed that, and you know that Jesus is calling you to lay down your old life and to surrender your life fresh and new to Christ. Are you here today and you know you're a believer? You know when you die, you're going to heaven. You know Christ has forgiven you of your sin, but yet you have picked up some old sin that Christ has died for that you ask forgiveness for and you're practicing that old sin. I am here to say to you today that Jesus rescues us from the power of sin in our life. If you believe that, would you say amen? And so if you were a gossip, you don't have to be a gossip today. If you were wrapped up and bound up in pornography, you don't have to be bound up in that pornography today. If you're one who is just malicious and a cutthroat and you just love to murmur about people and put people down, you don't have to do that anymore today. If you're a person who just like to steal and we're going to see a guy who was 
probably guilty of that in just a minute in the in Matthew, the tax collector, you don't have to do that anymore. Why is that? Because Jesus has rescued us from our sin. And this life that we now live, we live by faith in the power of the Son of God who gave his life for us. Jesus rescues us from our sin. But I want you to notice something else. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus also rescues us from our limitations. Verse, uh, verse 6, he says this, But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And look, look at this, how wonderful it is. And this man, he rose, and he went home. What was Jesus doing? He was rescuing this crippled man, this paralytic, from his own limitation. And he not only does that, but all throughout chapter 9, you see faith and rescue from our own limitations is what Jesus is doing. He's calling people to faith and belief and trust in his ability and power to deliver them from a life that was not pleasing to him and calling them away from those limitations. You see it here in 6 and 7, this man who was crippled and depressed, that Jesus rescues and he commands, rise, pick up your bed and go home. You say, how do you know that he's depressed? Because the Bible says that Jesus spoke to him, take heart, right? So what was he speaking about? He was speaking to his depressed and distracted nature. This guy was just struggling and he was discouraged in his life. He was discouraged probably because he was crippled. He was discouraged because he had to depend on his friends to even get him to Jesus. This man was living a life of discouragement. But this man meets Jesus and Jesus says to him, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And that's what this man does. Has God called you away from a limitation and you have yet to act on that? Have you picked up that very stronghold that has bound you all these years and said, that thing which has bound me, I am no longer bound by because Jesus has set me free and he has given me authority over that. So I am no longer bound to this stretcher, but I can take it up and I can be obedient to the Lord and I can rise and go home and do what the Lord has told me to do. In verse 6 and 7, Jesus rescued this crippled man from his lameness. But look at verse 20 and 22. 20, 21, 22. We see this woman who has suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Do you see that? The story, Jesus goes on his way. This man is healed. Everybody is rejoicing. Verse 8 says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And then when you get over there to verse 20, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made whole. A companion passage of this says that Jesus perceived that virtue went out from him, that somebody had touched him and that power went out from him. And then it says in verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now watch this. Do you see it? And instantly, if you see it, say amen. Instantly, instantly, the woman was made well. She, like the crippled man, was depressed. And Jesus says to her, take heart, daughter. Do you see that? She's distracted. She's depressed. She's discouraged. Take heart, daughter. Your faith in me has made you well. 
You say, I thought it was just her faith that made her well. I thought it was just the faith of that crippled man's friends that made her well. No, the crippled men had an object to their faith. Let me get my friend to Jesus. This woman had an object to her faith, and the object's Jesus. If I get to Jesus and just touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to be made whole. Faith in and of itself without an objective object is not faith. It's well-doing and it's well-wishing. We talk a lot about faith today. A matter of fact, Nashville writes a lot of songs that employ and use the word faith. But the only problem with our cultural view of faith is normally there is not an objective object right there that we are expressing our faith and trust in. And so we see this woman instantly, I mean instantly, this woman is made well. Can you imagine that? No doubt the woman was probably anemic. No doubt she had lived in shame. No doubt she had bared this burden for 12 years. And Jesus speaks the word and immediately, immediately she is healed. What is Jesus doing? He's rescuing the man from the limitation of his bed. He's rescuing this woman from her limitation of having this issue of blood. And then in verse 27 through 31, we see the two desperate blind men who are following Jesus. And listen to how Matthew puts it. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he, Jesus, entered the house, the blind man came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And I watched their response. They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. These two desperate blind men following Jesus, crying out for mercy. And Jesus says to them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? And they say, Yes, Lord. And the blind were made to see. And then in verses 32 through 34, as they were going away from there, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute, that means he was unable to speak, they were brought to Jesus. This man was brought to Jesus. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel, but watch the religious crowd. The Pharisees said, this Jesus, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Watch this. That is blasphemy, right? Accrediting something to the devil that's actually a work of the Lord. And so what is it that he's doing? We see that Jesus, as he casts out this stronghold, this demon in this man who was mute, that could not speak, immediately the mute man spoke. Preacher, what are we to take away from that today? Jesus not only rescues us from our deepest need, which is our sin, but Jesus rescues us from our limitations. Jesus restores what the fall of man and living in this flesh has ruined. He rescues us from our limitations. Well, preacher, if that is true, wouldn't Jesus cure everybody that had cancer? Wouldn't every blind person see? Wouldn't everybody who had an ailment be made well? And I would say to you, it's already, but not yet. 
for everyone who is a believer. Our wellness, our wholeness, us being taken away from our limitations is as good as done. And Jesus has guaranteed it, and the Holy Spirit of God has sealed it, right? But this idea of because Jesus has not yet come back and our bodies are not yet glorified, there is still this struggle and the issue of the flesh. But my brothers and sisters, that should not keep us from trusting Jesus as the rescuer from our limitations. What are you limited by today? What is holding you? What have you brought into your Christian life that Jesus died for? He called you away from it, but you have drug it right into, with you, into your Christian life. What is that? Is it a pessimistic attitude? Is it a critical spirit? What is it that Jesus died for that you asked him to forgive you of that you have laid down and then you have picked up and you are carrying it with you today? Oh, my brothers and sisters, give that to Jesus. Just like he wanted to take that from you when you called upon him in your initial faith response, Jesus is able to continually take that from you and I each and every day of our life. So if it's fear, if it's depression, if it's distraction, whatever it is, give that to the Lord and say, I'm not going to pick that up no more. God has got this and he knows, he knows that he has freed me from this limitation and it won't be just a little while until I'm through with this struggle. My brothers and sisters, I'm glad to be able to say to you today, I am not always going to be overweight and round. I'm not always going to be that way. Some of you are not always going to be critical. Some of you are not always going to cheat on your wife or your husband. Some of you are not always going to cheat on your teacher's exam. Some of you are not always going to do the things that you do. God is going to call you away from that limitation and he's going to deliver you from that tendency of the flesh that you so easily give into. And I would say to you that he will do that permanently when our bodies are glorified, but he stands ready to do it even today as we turn from our sin and call upon him. So Jesus rescues us from our sin. He rescues us from our limitations. And then look with me at verses 9 through 13. Jesus rescues us from our shame. He rescues us from our shame. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so he's calling Matthew to follow him. Matthew the tax collector. And Matthew gets up from his post and he immediately starts following Jesus. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees said. But when he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Can I share with you a great struggle inside of American Christianity? It is that when we get saved, oftentimes we want to get in a holy huddle with other people who are saved and we want to say we're discipling one another and we're growing and we have forgot about a whole group of sinners and tax collectors, publicans, people who are out there who need to experience the love of Jesus. You say, preacher, if I go and hang out with that crowd, will I have to sin? No, you don't have to sin. 
right? You can go and you can be among those who are sinning without sinning. And so Jesus comes to Matthew. He delivers Matthew from his shame. See, Matthew is a Jew who's uh, what the King James Version calls a publican, means a tax collector for the Roman government. And so here's what that means. He was a social outcast um, in Hebrew history. The, the Jews looked at Matthew and said, you're a traitor. They looked at Matthew and said, you've left our Hebrew history and culture and you've yoked up with the Roman government and now you are exacting taxes from us. You're taking taxes from us. And they viewed Matthew as this traitor. Matthew was a guy who was dishonest with money. In uh, the companion passage of this, you see that the Bible says that Matthew was not only a tax collector, but he oftentimes took more from the people than what the government was even requiring. How do you guys feel when the IRS calls you and they, you filed your taxes and they say, that's not enough, there's an error here, you owe us 3000 more or $4,000 more, and you're thinking, what in the world, Right? And you've just got this sort of mindset, IRS collectors are just not good. Well, here's what they're thinking. Matthew's not good because he's coming after us and he's taking our money. And so Matthew was not only dishonest, he's a social outcast. He's viewed as a traitor. And he's viewed more than anything as his friend to the Romans. So Matthew starts following Jesus and watch what happens. A bunch of other sinners a bunch of other sinners start following right along. They see that Jesus has extended an invitation to fellowship with Matthew, this sinner. And so Matthew, along with these other sinners, lived with this constant cloud of shame and reproach upon them. They knew they were sinners, but they did not know how to turn their lives around and be delivered from sin and shame. Haven't you been there? Haven't you done that? Do you remember what your life was like before you were born again? Do you remember how you were tired of your sin and there was some great deal of shame or reproach? That means that when you sinned, you didn't enjoy it even though that you were not a believer. There was still a violation of your conscience. You knew something about your behavior was not right. Your conscience was letting you know this is not what you were made for, right? That's the way God deals with us before we come to faith in Christ. If you're like your pastor, you would do things like read a self-help book. Man, my whole freshman year of college, all I did was read one self-help book after another. How do I stop doing this and how do I become the young, profitable uh, young man that God wants me to be? And so I'd read self-help books. I uh, would go to uh, professors my sophomore year at the University of Kentucky before I was born again, and I would talk to them, and I would say, uh, I know you want me to learn this subject, but I'm in a rest. How, do you, how can you be successful in life? So I was looking at self-help books, and I was talking to, uh, to uh, professors on a college campus that did not know really what life was all about to begin with, and I was searching for answers because there was a great deal of shame upon my life. How many of you remember the guilt of shame? How many of you remember that? Will you raise your hand? That is what Matthew 
and these sinners were living under. This weight of shame. They knew their life was not lining up to what probably God had for them, but they did not know who God was and how this shame and reproach could be lifted. And notice what happened. Jesus, our rescuer, shows up and he calls these sinners from their shame to receive his mercy. You say, how did he do that? Well, he says, when he, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Can't you imagine the music and the good news that that was to these sinners' hearts? And Jesus said, go and learn what this means. He says to the Pharisees, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. He came to call sinners to repentance. So what is he speaking of there? He's speaking about how Jesus has this wonderful ability to deliver us from our sin, to rescue us from our limitations, and to rescue us from our shame. I just wonder this morning, are there any Matthews in the house this morning? Are you tired of the shame of sin? You're in a platonic relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. Your husband or your wife does not know it. You've been thinking about what would it be like to have an affair, but you've yet to have courage to step out and be unfaithful to your house, to your spouse. You're not mindful because your flesh will not allow you to be mindful of the very fact that if you're already thinking about it and desiring it in your heart, you're already guilty of that. You're not thinking about what will this do to Christ? What will this do to his kingdom? What will this do to my spouse? What will this do to my family? And what will it do to me? And you're sort of there and you're shamed by that. And you're not for sure how to get out of that. And your conscience is saying, this is not God's way for you. You come to worship and you hear your pastor preach a message like this and the Holy Spirit blesses the reading of God's word and he's tugging at your heart and says, go ahead and lay down that sin, lay down that shame, lay down that guilt, lay down that reproach and walk in my freedom. But you have the world screaming in this ear over here. Yeah, but you just don't know. Your husband won't know. Your husband of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, your husband won't know. Your wife, she won't know. Go ahead and do it. You can keep it hidden. You can live a dual life. Oh, brother and sister, aren't you tired of that shame and that reproach weighing upon you? Aren't you tired of that shame and that guilt of thinking to yourself, how can I possibly be free from this? Maybe you're here and you're not thinking about it, but you've already done it. Can I say to you today, turn from that and give God all of that shame, all of that sin, all of that reproach, because Jesus has died on the cross to be your rescuer and deliverer from all of that shame. You say, preacher, if you've not committed adultery, you don't know what people deal with. 
who are feeling that kind of inclination and that pull when they're in that platonic relationship. I want you to know, and I'm not going to glorify God, I mean glorify the enemy by telling you, but there is not much your pastor has not done or does not know. I did not come to faith until I was 19, and man, when Jesus forgave me, he had to forgive me for a whole boatload of stuff. And I'm going to tell you, he not only forgave me, but he's removed that reproach and that sin and that shame. Only Jesus can do such a thing, right? Will you say, man, if Jesus did it for Matthew, if Jesus did it for them sinners, Jesus can rescue me from my shame. And then last but not least, look at 18 and 19. The progression of this is, Jesus rescues us from our shame, from our limitations, from our sin. But Jesus has the power and ability to allow the story of Matthew 9 to end well. A little girl has died. If this was Hollywood, we would close the chapter right there. Well, Jesus has done a whole lot, but yet this woman, this little girl, she's died. But that's not how this story ends. Listen to what it says. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now skip down to verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for this girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. Now watch the cynics. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in and he took this girl by the hand. And the girl arose. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. My friends, today, Jesus has power to rescue us from sin, from our limitations, from our shame, and even from death. This man's daughter, like Lazarus, like the widow from Nain's son, all who were raised only to die a physical death again. But when Jesus raises you and I, when he raises our bodies from the grave, we will have new glorified bodies that will never perish again. You say, how do I know that? How can you be so confident in that, Pastor? Paul says it this way in Romans 7, verses 24 and 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? And the emphasis is on the body. Who will rescue me from this body of death, this flesh? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, dear listener today. Jesus delivers us even from the domain of of death. Isn't that thrilling? Isn't that exciting to know that there's a resurrection? Isn't it wonderful to know that when the body fails us, that we have this wonderful rescuer who will rescue us and deliver us? You say, Pastor, are you saying to me today that if I trust Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, 
that he guarantees that my body will be resurrected. Yep. Paul says it this way in Corinthians. He says, The eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. There is a resurrection from those who are dead in Christ. I got to thinking about that this week. Tracy and I don't have our uh, burial plots, our grave sites yet. Uh, when you start to get in your 50s, you start thinking about those things a little bit more. God's allowed us, even though we are from Chicago, Medcalf County originally, we've spent the majority of our ministry time in Glasgow. We imagine it's a good place as any to die, right? I'm, I'm not going to be here forever, and so my body's going to be resurrected, and so just our preference would be Glasgow Municipal. We love that cemetery. We love trees. Whenever I have to do a funeral there, I always make small talk with the funeral grounds guys. I used to work with one of those fellows at Donnelly's, and I'll say to him, are all the good spots taken down here with the trees? Yep. Preacher, you're going to have to get you one up here on this hill. And I got to thinking about that, about up here on this hill. You know, the, the grave sites up on the hill have the best view of the eastern sky, right? Everybody else sort of down in that valley with those trees. You say, preacher, now you're just making a mess. Would you all stand to your feet? Because I, I really want to convey to you how much Jesus is your rescuer today. When I breathe my last here, if I do not see my hero, Jesus, coming on his white horse, if I do not see the bodily, physical, second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and I breathe my last here it's only going to be for a short time my soul will immediately be with the Lord how do you know that preacher because to be absent in this body is to what be present with who to be present with Christ so in soul I'll be present with the Lord waiting the reunion of this old fleshly body He's going to make it better than it was when I got married. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now listen to this. The grave will not hold those who have died in Christ. Cancer does not have the final word. If you're watching a loved one who's suffering from dementia and age is taking its toll, that is not the final story for the believer. If you're here today and you're one who has had some sort of sin in your life that it has brought such shame and reproach, you live with that daily, and you think, I'm going to live with this the rest of my life, that is not the end of the story. You say, what is the end of the story, preacher? It is this good news. Ring Collective pins it well. And I will leave you with these words. There is good news for the captive. Good news for the shame. There is good news for the one who walked away. There is good news for the doubter. 
The one religion failed, for the good Lord has come to seek and save. He is beauty for the blind man. Someone says amen. He's riches for the poor. He is friendship for the one the world ignores. He is pasture for the weary, rest for those who strive. For the good Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, the good Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. So come and be chainless. Come and be fearless. Come to the foot of Calvary. For there is redemption for every affliction here at the foot of Calvary. Why? He's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. How grace abounds. We will praise the Lord, our rescuer. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? And for those of you who want to come and just respond right now with a bent knee to the Lord and say, God, thank you for being my rescuer. I want to invite you to come right now. Just 